Hello and welcome to the Food Freedom Podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Food Freedom Coach, and I'm really excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information, and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Today I have on the podcast Victoria Stockwell. Victoria is somebody who has been a client of mine in the past and has struggled with disordered eating behaviours since the age of 11. I have a lot of love and affection for Victoria as she is someone who is incredibly bright, funny, intelligent, kind and has lots to say on this subject matter. She is a great resource. So Victoria has struggled with disordered eating from a young age and she has experienced various different types of disordered eating and part of this has included venturing into the bodybuilding world and how this really impacted her relationship with food. So I am so grateful for Victoria for coming on today and for sharing her experiences so openly and I really hope that you enjoy this interview just as much as I did. Hi there Victoria, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so tell me a bit more about who you are and a little bit about you. So my name is Victoria. I'm 36 and I currently live in Ely with my husband, Tom, and my four cats. I've spent the majority of my life suffering from eating disorders and other associated psychological conditions. For the past 25 years, I've followed various eating regimes, which I'm sure some of the listeners will be familiar with, vegetarian, vegan, before it was trendy, carb cycling, keto, I've counted calories, I've calculated macronutrient ratios, weighed food and eaten meals at specific times of the day. But most destructively, I have severely restricted my food intake and engaged in self-induced vomiting. I'm currently weight restored, but still recovering from my most recent relapse into anorexia. And this was triggered in 2012 when I started to train for bodybuilding competitions. The disordered eating has played your life for such a long time. You know, I really feel for you that it's been such a constant in your life. It really has. Unfortunately, I can't remember what it's not like to have an eating disorder, to not have that constant battle in your head between being desperately hungry and also dreading the physical and psychological consequences of just giving in to that hunger. Mm. It sounds really torturous. So tell me, Victoria, like, how, how was your early relationship with food? As far as I can remember, as a child, I ate normally. Sometimes I was a little bit fussy, as children normally are, but there was nothing out of the ordinary. My mum makes the most amazing meals. I know everyone always says their mum is the best cook in the world, but my mum really is. She actually trained as a cook, so she would make fantastic dinners. She would always ask me what I wanted to eat and would never ask me to force me to eat anything that I didn't like. So I think I was I was quite lucky there. Mm, yeah, and no, I think great having a mum who's a fantastic cook. <laughs> So what age did you actually become like more conscious about your weight and shape? It was when I was age 11. 
Okay. So was a particular trigger for this? I remember one day, out of the blue, I just stepped on the scales and weighed myself in the bathroom. And when I was a child, people would comment that I was skinny. I never reflected on what I looked like on my body, but people would just say, oh, skinny. And when I stepped on the scales, even though the number didn't really mean anything to me because I hadn't weighed myself before, it was heavier than I had imagined. So this was the first time that I remember being aware that my body might not actually be skinny. Then that night, I remember very distinctively lying in bed and running my hands over my stomach and thinking that it wasn't perfectly flat. And ever since then, even to that day, 25 years later, my stomach is still the focus of my body dysmorphia from that one day. Mm. It's so interesting, actually, isn't it? Because it almost sounds like probably until that day, you had never really thought too much about your body. You know, you've probably been quite neutral about it. But almost that act of standing on the scales and then suddenly being much more aware and conscious of your tummy that kind of was a real kind of turning point. And I'm thinking as well, it sounds like perhaps your identity was quite linked to being small and slim. You know, maybe you hadn't even been aware of that. But so almost when you found that discrepancy, when you thought, oh, my tummy isn't flat, or I'm not as, I don't weigh as uh, little as I was thinking, it kind of made you more preoccupied or anxious about your body. Do you think, was there anything else going on at the time that might have impacted kind of how you felt about yourself at that age? I can't think of any particular events, but maybe just some of my personality traits would have fed into this. From an early age, I have been a perfectionist. I always worked hard at school and I achieved top grades in everything. If I got an A minus instead of an A, to me, that was a failure. So I was always a perfectionist. I'm also highly competitive. I always have been. I always had to win everything. And I'm very self-critical. So perhaps my weight was another aspect of myself that I could control and, to my mind, perfect. Also, ever since I was young, I've had an all-or-nothing attitude to life. I find it very hard to just have a happy medium. So if I choose to do something, I fully commit to it. But unfortunately, this also meant that I fully committed to losing weight and controlling my food. Mm. And it's so interesting, isn't it? I think it just shows actually, perhaps if you have those personality traits of perhaps being highly perfectionist, maybe a bit all or nothing, that obviously if it gets channeled in a weight loss direction, it's kind of highly dangerous, isn't it? Because you're not going to do things by halves by any means. Yeah, these positive traits that people have, which drive them to be successful, if they are then, as you said, directed towards a more destructive route, you then become extremely destructive and very good at that and very committed to that. And it's difficult to just stop. Mm. So tell me what happened with food at this time. I remember I began to restrict my food. First of all, I stopped having snacks between meals and then I would stop having lunch and then I would stop having breakfast. So 
my eating just got my meals just basically got smaller and smaller to the point where I would only have one meal a day ideally I wouldn't have had anything to eat during the day but I had to eat dinner because I was at home and everyone had had dinner so I had to eat that meal but it even got to the point where I was too scared to even drink water I would take a bottle of water with me to school in the morning and then when I got home my mum would comment that it was still full and I hadn't drunk anything so I was even too scared to drink to drink water because it was something else that I was putting into my body Mm. I mean it sounds incredibly punishing so did that continue yes it continued for the majority of my teens and it, it worsened so over the next few years my weight decreased to dangerous levels and this was my first major relapse into well it wasn't a relapse it was the first one it was my first descent into anorexic behavior as well as restricting my eating I was always constantly body checking looking in the mirror looking in if we passed a shop window or a car window I would look at my reflection if I was at home I weighed myself every 15 minutes I was just addicted to just going to the scale going to the scales my weight gone up has it gone down if I ate something I'd weigh myself if I went to the toilet I weigh myself again I tried to conceal my weight loss by wearing baggier clothes which at the time was actually quite easy because my clothes hung loose on me anyway and I tried to conceal the fact that I wasn't eating I did I did feel ashamed and I thought there was something that was wrong with me no one I knew did this apart from me and at the time I didn't understand what restrictive eating was or that it even had a medical diagnosis as anorexia my friends and family did notice my weight loss because it's quite extreme they didn't the subject was never addressed in terms of finding a solution they just commented that I was getting skilly tall and that I never ate so they just commented really on the behaviors I was never presented with a solution other than people saying, just eat, you know, what, why are you eating? Just eat, just eat and you'll, you'll be better. That they couldn't understand why I didn't. And they didn't understand that it wasn't about the eating or not eating, but there was in fact an underlying issue that was driving these behaviours. I now know that the, the food was just a symptom of something else. And for me, it was a coping mechanism. But I didn't understand this at the time either. All I knew was I, want, I needed to lose weight. I wanted to lose weight. It was almost a, a compulsion. And I didn't want to eat. But I didn't understand this at the time because I was only, I was only very young. Mm. You know, I think I'm struck by just how alone you were at the time. Because I think it just shows that there wasn't really a lot of good understanding back then, was there, about eating disorders? I mean, I think thankfully times are changing, you know, times have changed more recently. And I think there is more awareness now. But I think even sort of 10, 15 years ago, eating disorders sort of almost had a one look approach. And I think many, many people struggled and went undiagnosed. Yes, I agree. I was, I did feel very alone because nobody else I knew or knew of did this and 
nobody seemed to understand and it was it was in the, the 90s and there was no there was no internet internet probably wasn't even invented I remember I didn't have the internet until I was I think we had it at home at some point but it was that old dial up internet where you can't go on the phone and be on the internet at the same time really annoying so I did actually have access to the internet properly until I went to university so there was no readily available information so I couldn't just google and of course there wasn't any social media we didn't have phones like mobile phones so I couldn't see that there were other people in the world who suffered and that they had this and that it was something that you could get treatment for so yeah I felt extremely alone Mm, sure and I think it highlights doesn't it actually just there are so many positive effects of social media aren't there and the internet you know I think social media does get a big bad press but actually and and some of it is quite toxic but actually there's a really supportive kind of helpful element to it as well and um and nowadays people really don't feel so alone because you can like really reach out and probably find someone else who's in a very similar place to you so did you actually get any help back then no I didn't mainly because taking me to a psychologist was always used as a threat to try and make me eat so people would say if you if you don't eat I'm taking you to see somebody as to try and scare me into something into eating but this didn't work because I was so locked into not eating that you know the the threat of taking me to to see a psychologist wouldn't have made me eat but because this was used as a threat I began to perceive the need for therapy or to see a doctor as something shameful and I thought that there must be something very wrong with me if people thought that I needed some kind of professional help. Sure. Well, it's really tough, isn't it? You know, I, I kind of just really feel for you kind of back then and, and just being so alone with it. So what sort of happened next, you know, after that? I think, I can't remember how I sort of got out of it, but I think gradually into my later teens, I think I began to eat more normally. When I say normally, I use that in inverted commas. <laughs> but my next serious bout of anorexia was around the age of 20 when I had just finished my first degree and I went into my second degree. So I was at university and this continued for several years. At this time, I also developed bulimia. Prior to this, I had just restricted my eating. So now I was purging as well. And I also engaged in compulsive exercise as a form of purging. And this took the form of running. And I'd say at this point, running was definitely an addiction and people who know me now know that I never run I never do any cardio I don't I complain walking up the stairs you know I don't like Mm. to move fast and I think it's because I ran so much at university that I used up all my running allowance for the rest of my life so yeah Uh. I, I I had all these other different behaviors as well that I was I was using as a tool Mm. So, and do you think Victoria was there a particular trigger then like when you were finishing your first degree and starting your second degree like was was there anything particularly that was may have triggered you back into anorexia I think it was perhaps again linked with 
achieving and control because in the end I achieved a first class degree and I had to work incredibly hard for that and not only that but I achieved the highest first class degree in my entire graduating year and I won a prize for the best dissertation in English literature so again it's like I couldn't just graduate I had to be the top and the best and the best and I just pushed myself so much and I think if I try and push myself in one aspect of my life at the time it was academia everything else kind of gets pushed along with it so I think again I was was so stressed and determined to do well that this was also coming out in other areas of my life so I started being compulsive again and about exercising and and not eating Mm, okay and you met your husband Tom at university yes I went to university in St Andrews so we met in Scotland I was still working on my PhD at the time and he was working as a concept artist so he'd moved up from England to work in Scotland and yeah the rest is history we eventually got married in 2013 so it will be our seventh wedding anniversary this year. So and how does Tom kind of react to your struggles with eating? Well obviously I had problems with eating when he met me. Mm. Sometimes I go through more difficult phases than others so he's always known that I don't eat like most people but he's always very supportive even though it's it's terribly difficult for other people to understand mm. and of course he's, he's extremely concerned when I go through more difficult times with my eating but as with everybody else around me he feels helpless like he doesn't know what to do but he always asks how he can help and as you know he came to some of my therapy sessions with you and that really helped So I would actually say to to people who are married or have a partner or loved ones, when you go through the recovery process, having your loved ones come to some of the sessions with you and find out how best to support the person suffering is really valuable. Yeah, no, well, thank you for sharing that, Victoria, because I think, I think it's so hard, isn't it? Because I think people have really good intentions and try to be helpful, but it's so easy to kind of get drawn into doing things sometimes that aren't helpful. And then it kind of, then that means there's a breakdown in communication perhaps between you. So yeah, kind of actually like coming along and having them all those kind of open discussions can be so valuable. Yeah, definitely. So I can I say understand a lot that way now. <laughs> So I understand as well that you started weight training and got into sort of bodybuilding sort of later on in your 20s? Yes, I started weightlifting and it just, it was, it was amazing. It initially helped with my body dysmorphia because running doesn't really change your body, whereas weight training, it does. And almost immediately you can see new muscles appearing and and your shape changing so starting to lift weights made me feel like I was more in control of my physical shape and I also love being strong obviously at the time I wasn't strong because I just started but now you know so many years later it's it's fantastic to be able to 
lift heavy, especially because I'm only petite, I'm only five foot two. So it's quite satisfying to be able to lift really heavy barbells and then people thinking, wow, she's actually not as tiny and weak as she looks. <laughs> um, so yeah, I began to take weight training very seriously in my late 20s. And then eventually I became a pro bikini competitor. Okay, so tell me a bit more about this world. So at the time when I competed, bodybuilding shows weren't as well-known or popular as they are now. So I'm sure a lot of people listening now will be aware of fitness shows, bodybuilding shows, bikini competitions. But I think I I began competing when it wasn't as popular because I'd never heard of them before. But then I got drawn into it. Yeah, the world of, of physique competitions is completely driven by aesthetics. So you're not judged on how strong you are, you know, how much you can lift in the gym. You're just judged on the results of that. So solely on your physical appearance and to what extent your body accords with the judge's physical ideal for each category. So there are different categories for different bodies. So how did that impact your relationship with food? So just to give a bit of background, ground I competed in the bikini and fitness model categories but ironically the methods that are used to attain the the fitness look are actually can actually be quite unhealthy and damaging to your mental and physical health so preparing for competition did trigger my patterns of disorderly eating this is because when you're preparing for a competition, you have to be very strict and regulated with your training, but more importantly, your eating. So food is controlled by meticulous weighing of food, restriction of calories, calculating macronutrient ratios, so working out what proportion of fat, carbohydrate and protein you need to achieve the best results and eating at specific times of the day. So prior to entering the competition world, I had just focused on calories and consuming as few as possible. But now I had this these other things that were were coming in with my eating behaviors. So as a result of these strict regimes, I started to really feel the effects as time went on. My period stopped my hair started to fall out. I was always really cold and I got weaker. So it was harder to actually train in the gym. I was miserable, irritable. I'm sure I was the worst person in the world to be around. And also I experienced more psychological problems. So my depression got worse, anxiety, and I had really bad digestive problems as well. So on stage, I looked the peak of health and fitness, but in reality, it was the opposite. I was suffering at the time from physical and mental damage. Mm. It's so interesting actually to really hear this honest feedback about your experiences here, because obviously outwardly you looked in peak physical condition. And I guess in a way you were getting kind of feedback that you looked really good and, you know, you had a lot of of positive praise for your physique. 
But in reality, you know, you're really sort of struggling with disordered eating and also really with your mental well-being too. Yes, and you're completely right because competitors look really good in peak physical condition. Eating disorders often go unidentified in the competition industry since competitors don't have the outward appearance of illness. On the contrary, they look really healthy. But this is sometimes because even though competitors have extremely low body fat, they also have a lot of muscle. And this muscle means that they don't look ill or emaciated in the same way that a woman who has a normal amount of muscle mass would. Mm. So how was it as well then after the shows, kind of when they ended? So immediately after, this is almost kind of a ritual when a show ends, is you just immediately go and eat as much as you can, as fast as you can, because you've been so deprived of food and liquid to look the best on stage just for that one day as soon as it's over all you can think about is food so people engage in post-competition binges and again that could be seen as something that's perhaps disorderly disorderly eating but it's just kind of what what is accepted like everybody does it they just go and stuff their faces full of all the things that they've had to deprive themselves of to look a certain way so there's the immediate effects of that such as rapid weight gain because of all the food you've consumed and also all the water that you're holding on to and the bloating because your body just can't deal with these these foods because it's going what is this I haven't seen pizza or chocolate for a long time and then there's also the long-lasting effects of competing so after competing I became scared of carbohydrates and non-clean foods so anything that's not deemed suitable for creating this competition body Mm. I had an obsession with tracking macronutrients I restricted my food again and because I was restricting I would have huge binges of cheat foods because in the competition industry there's a lot of language around eating clean or having a cheat meal which again that that language doesn't help with ways of thinking about food because it makes food either good or or bad which which isn't great. So yeah, immediate after effects and then more long lasting effects. So how did this impact your relationship with your body? So it definitely exacerbated my pre-existing preoccupation with appearance and body dysmorphia. This was because when you're preparing for a competition, you constantly have to monitor yourself and engage in this minute self-surveillance. I was constantly weighing myself, measuring my body fat, my waist circumference with a tape measure. I would take weekly progress pictures to see how my body was changing leading up to competition. And I would always be comparing myself to that ideal standard that I needed to achieve for the competition. What made it worse is during preparation, my body was not only measured and checked by myself but also by my competition prep coach because most people have a coach who helps them get ready for competition because it is so difficult and I remember him saying 
I will be taking your fat measurements next week. So I'll know if you have come off the plan. And that made me kind of scared to even have a bite over what he'd put on the plan because he sort of said, you know, I'm going to be checking in on you. I'll know if you've had anything else. And I also remember him saying to me, when I started working with him, you'll need to go to a really dark place for this to work. So to get what I needed to go to and to look like on stage, I'd have to go to a very dark place. And he meant psychologically because it was so tough. And and I did. I did go to that dark place. And I won, but I stayed in that dark place for a long time. Mm. So it sounds like um, as well, go on. Oh, I was just, just going to say what happened after competition as well, because as you were saying before, when you win, it really does validate your, your efforts to achieve this lean muscular physique. During my competition time, I, I did win various titles, including first place fitness model I got ladies overall winners I won the whole show and then eventually I was awarded my my pro card which is the the highest accolade that you can achieve in the competing world but this when I won it just reinforced my disorderly eating because in a sense I was being rewarded for all this self-punishment that Mm. I had carried out in order to achieve this type of body but on the other hand on occasions where I didn't win or I came like fourth, it made me feel like I wasn't good enough. And this is the danger of competitions is that one minute you're elated that you've won and, and everyone's saying, oh, you know, you're amazing. And, and then the next minute you haven't won and you think, oh, well, well, what's happened? So it is quite a roller coaster. The judging is, is very subjective. One judge may like the way you look, and another may not and between different competition federations they have different guidelines for what this particular category should look like so I remember one week I won in one competition I won first place in the fitness model category and I won ladies overall and then the next weekend I competed in a different federation and I won absolutely nothing and I was thinking but I have the same body and I've done the same thing on stage. So how is it I've gone from being getting winning the whole show to then not even getting you know, a BB prize? <laughs> so it it's very psychologically destructive in that way. You have to be very tough. And I wasn't. Yeah, well, it, it sounds it actually. And I, I guess you become it, that external validation kind of tells you, doesn't it? If you, if yeah. you're kind of, um, you've done it well or you haven't. And I guess it just so reinforces the kind of black and white, all or nothing thinking. And it sounds like as well, it's, it could be very easy just to completely lose trust in yourself or kind of keep a healthier perspective in that kind yeah. of place. But it's so helpful to hear this, Victoria, because I'm sure. I'm sure you're not alone in your struggles with eating and body image, sort of in the body and building world. I think it's just not talked about very much. Yeah, I think it is more now. But after I retired from competing, I began to research this topic myself because I just knew from being around other competitors and having friends who were competing that people were struggling. You know, this is such a difficult thing to do. So I decided to put a bit more 
time into investigating this and I interviewed around 50 female competitors and I looked around on the internet as well and I discovered that disorderly eating body dysmorphia are actually prevalent throughout the competition industry. I found that female athletes especially who took part in these type of aesthetic sports were at the highest risk for eating disorders and the women who I interviewed the majority had either previously suffered from eating disorders or were currently suffering. So you're right, my own research showed that preparing for a competition can trigger pre-existing eating disorders or it can actually lead to the development of new eating disorders which are triggered by the strict regimes that you need for competing and interestingly during my, my research I found that anorexics and athletes actually have similar psychological profiles and these include things like perfectionistic tendencies, competitiveness, compulsiveness and distortions in body image so actually quite similar. Mm. Sure, it's so interesting. You know, I think that research that you, you began, like it's so valuable and kind of giving people a bit of a voice actually for something that's not really talked about. Do you think that the disordered eating almost was kind of like an accepted part and parcel of kind of getting the results in sort of bodybuilding training? I have to tread carefully here because I did put some of my findings online. Mm -hmm. And not everybody who competes will be ill. And I wouldn't say it was accepted, as in people wouldn't say that it was disorderly. And this is the thing, even though the practices may actually be quite similar. So training for competition and prepping for competition, the eating part of it is actually quite similar to what people who were diagnosed with eating disorders would do it's not labeled in the same way so yeah in order to compete successfully you do have to go to extremes with your diet and and your training so this could be labeled as disorderly but because it's part of the competition prep it's not perceived to be disorderly it's actually praised as an achievement so when you mm. when you achieve your low body fat using these strict methods it's not viewed as a signifier of illness it's actually something that's worthy of praise but for women especially this and competing involves pushing your body beyond where it's naturally comfortable because women are biologically supposed to have body fat much body higher body fat percentage than men and when you're competing you're reducing this to dangerously low levels and the extreme methods that are used to do this can, well, they are disorderly themselves and they can spiral into worse eating disorders. But I'm not saying that competitions are inherently damaging or dangerous, but the practices that are often used to achieve that type of body are very similar to someone who has proper medical diagnosis of anorexia. And they can act as a trigger for someone who's predisposed to obsessions with their body or eating disorders. But I suppose that if you weren't obsessed with your body, then you wouldn't compete because 
by the very nature of it, it's making your body into something, just focusing on your body and your aesthetics. So they are very closely linked, in my opinion. Mm, sure. And it's quite fascinating, isn't it? I guess it, you know, I think it just listening to you, actually, I'd be interested just to kind of find out a bit more about this. And like, you know, because I, I guess there are some people that are able to kind of be in this world and not be impacted in quite the same way. But it's mm. quite fascinating, really, because I almost think when you're putting your body to those extremes, it would be quite hard not to experience some of these kind of more disorderly eating kind of behaviours or symptoms. Yeah, because um, as fasc- you know, when you start to restrict your eating, there are changes that happen in your brain that actually make you obsessed with food. When you're restricting food, you start to obsess about it. And what am I going to eat when I come out of competition? And yeah, there was that experiment done, the Minnesota starvation experiment. And that's kind of what the competitors start to go into. But I think that might be a topic for another podcast because that's that's an incredibly longer and th- th- I've done lots of research on this. So definitely explore mm. that another time. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. So I understand as well that you decided to leave the bodybuilding world. And so what was the trigger for this? So... After I was awarded my pro card, I actually had a few more competitions lined up for the the rest of that year, but I pulled out of them because I was just physically and mentally exhausted. I just couldn't carry on with it anymore. But after I stopped competing, I just couldn't go back to to eating more normally. I just couldn't let go of this strict eating regime, and it's because when you're in the best physical shape of your life on stage and you've just been awarded the highest accolade for having the best body, you're then terrified of losing that body. So I was scared of becoming softer, regaining body fat. And because you judge your body against the standard you were on show day, if you gain any more body fat after that you perceive it to be bigger than it is even though by normal standards it's not Mm. so the result of this is that I relapsed into anorexia so tell me a bit more about that relapse into anorexia so I restricted my eating more and more I basically just carried on eating the way I did for competition and I eventually lost so much. My This was over the course of about 18 months. My hormones stopped functioning. My, my thyroid became underactive. My menstrual cycles stopped. And my internal organs themselves started shutting down. So I'd say this was the most serious relapse into anorexia that I've experienced. I had to have weekly blood tests to check what was going on and they were always abnormal I would just see a page of red my heart rate slowed I was constantly cold I was so weak I couldn't even walk 10 minutes to the shop without feeling dizzy and I couldn't sit down because I was my coccyx was so bony I had to always sit on a cushion and I couldn't have a bath so it was my body was just shutting down I was so ill that I actually had to leave my job and my home and my husband I moved in with my parents for months for them to look after me 
Gosh, that sounds like an incredibly sort of horrible and difficult time. It was incredibly frightening, but I also felt numb looking back on that time. It's like I can't really remember it, but I just know that I couldn't see a way out. I knew what I was doing to my body and I, I knew that there was only one way this would go if I kept on with my behaviours. But I, I couldn't stop it. I just felt powerless. Obviously, my family were extremely concerned, but they didn't know what to do either. But I remember there was a moment when something did click with me and it's my dad came to me and my brother once and then he saw me and my dad told me that my brother had had said to him that he was worried that I was dying and that's when I think I realized how far I'd pushed myself and how serious this was. Mm. So did you access help then at that point? I went to my GP. This wasn't actually my local GP because my parents live up in the north of England, but she was very good. Turns out I actually went to school with her, so I, I knew who she was, but I hadn't seen her since school. But she was very good and she got me an appointment at an eating disorders clinic where my parents live. And I had an assessment there, but there was such a long waiting list that by the time I moved back to Cambridgeshire, I still hadn't had treatment. So once I moved, because I was in a different area, I had to apply for treatment all over again. And whilst I was waiting for this, I continued to lose even more body weight and become increasingly ill. But then I had an assessment at the Eating Disorders Clinic, Adam Brooks, and then treatment was offered within a few weeks. So I was very surprised that it had come quickly. And that's when we started working together. So what was you say your experience of therapy was like? So therapy was challenging, but it's supposed to be. <laughs> but I was I was ready then to commit to recovery because I realized that I couldn't go on the way I was. So because I was committed to it, I put everything into it. And because I put everything into recovering, I got a lot out. So I would say that therapy is definitely a two-way street. So the more you put in, the more you will gain. And I learned lots of things about myself. I had lots of what I call light bulb moments where I go, oh yeah. But I went into therapy still in that mindset of needing, I just desperately wanted a recovery food plan. I wanted it all to be set down. This is what you eat. These are the macronutrient ratios. These are the calories, all measured to the gram. Like my competition prep plans and I thought right I need that and I'll just follow that and I'll recover but I eventually came to realize it it wasn't about that at all I actually needed to just take that and just basically mentally throw it in in the bin and you know it's not about having plans it's not about having this thing that you can follow it's letting go of that strict thinking um and I just, in reality, I just needed to eat a lot of food and whatever my body wanted and every type of food. And I really enjoyed the sessions themselves. The hardest part was when I went home and then I had to eat. So I'd say that allowing myself to just let go and eat and to gain weight, that was the hardest part. I really enjoyed the therapy sessions themselves. But I now fully appreciate that eating disorders are 
not about eating or not eating. The most important part of therapy is changing your brain. And the disorderly patterns of eating are just the symptom of an underlying issue. So for me, it was about digging out what was driving this and trying to address it. Because otherwise, you're just putting a plaster over the whole thing. Mm. So how did sort of therapy change things for you? Well, psychologically, it did help me to find that fundamental issue behind my eating disorder, which turned out to be emotional repression. So in that way, therapy helped me to accept that my emotions are normal and that everybody has them and they're not something to be ashamed of or pushed down. So now I can express myself more instead of internalizing them and turning to either restrictive eating or bulimia as a coping mechanism and physically it did lead to my weight restoration and now I'm physically healthy and I'm stronger than I've ever been so it changed me physically and psychologically. Hmm. So I know that you have some things that you continue to struggle with, which you might want to just mention, but I know as well, there've also been like lots of things that have really improved for you. I think it's well, well be so helpful for you to share. Yeah. So I still struggle with body dysmorphia, body checking and restrictive eating, binge eating, but compared to how they were a few years ago, they have improved enormously so in terms of improvements with my food my calorie intake has greatly increased I don't track food with apps anymore got rid of my fitness pal I try not to look at nutritional labels I eat a much wider range of foods and I'm still working now on introducing more fear foods even a couple of weeks ago I started eating one of my fear foods and nothing bad happened to me. So I'm really pleased that I was managed, I managed to do that. And then that was kind of the gateway to having something else that was similar, but also in that category. So I feel like even now, years later, I'm still finding out that I can eat more and more, which is great. With exercise, I don't use exercise as a form of purging anymore. Like I said, I never run. <laughs> I go to the gym because I love weightlifting. I like being physically strong and I enjoy being able to sculpt my body and actually make aspects bigger rather than seeking to be smaller. I haven't weighed myself for a year either. I put the scales away and I don't want to be weighed. I now just completely weight free, which is very liberating. If I do have a binge, I try not to restrict afterwards or purge. And with my feelings, I'm trying to feel them. And just if I do get a strong emotion to not push it down, just to kind of feel them and sort of ride the wave of that emotion and, and not push it down and just carry on with something else, because then it will just come back at some point in another way. I'm now more open about how I'm feeling, truly feeling, rather than just saying things that I think people want to hear because I, I have been a people pleaser in the past and said yes to things that I don't want to do. So now I think I'm better at saying no if I don't want to do something and knowing that that's okay to say no, not feeling guilty about it. So I'm putting more boundaries in place to protect myself. And yeah, I distract myself with things that I like doing. Like I love reading. 
I love going for walks, obviously weightlifting, baking. I bake nearly every day and my cats really help as well. So I've got more things that I try and do to enjoy myself, just little things. Mm. This sounds like, Victoria, you have come a really long way, haven't you? I know you're not perhaps quite where you want to be yet, but, you know, I think it's so helpful when you're kind of reflecting on the progress you've made there. If you could turn the clock back now, what do you think could have helped change your relationship with food kind of back to when you were a teenager? I think if I had been offered some kind of professional help when my eating disorders first began to emerge, that would have helped. And if I'd understood what eating disorders were, because as I said, I wasn't, I didn't really know what was going on. But at the time in the mid 90s, as I said, seeing a therapist wasn't really an option. I didn't know anyone who saw a therapist or where I would go or, and of course I was on the young, so I wasn't an adult who could just kind of go right I'm going to go to therapy so that would have helped if I'd seen a therapist as I was younger and if there was readily available information about eating disorders as there is now you could just look something up but yeah it's the age pre-technology so yeah that would have helped if I could have looked into a bit more and realized that what I had actually was a medical condition and not something that was wrong with me in inverted commas so yeah it would have helped if through having therapy, I would have understood that my eating disorder was a coping mechanism for dealing with more uncomfortable feelings and emotions. Then I could have addressed those underlying issues. Um, Even if it's not trying to solve them, just knowing that it's okay to feel your emotions. So yeah, I think therapy and having someone explain to me that it's okay to have problems with food. It's lots of people do, and it's not something to be ashamed of. And then trying to root out why I was doing it, that would have helped, I think. Mm. So what messages do you have for your younger self? I would say that losing weight doesn't bring happiness. It doesn't solve any problems. And that you're not your body. Your body doesn't define you or determine your worth and you have so much more to give you're so much more besides your physical appearance I would tell myself that emotions are normal and healthy so it's fine and encouraged you to express them rather than pushing them down and then engaging in self-destructive behaviors and I would give myself permission to eat because that's that was helpful for me to just have that permission for someone to go, it's okay to eat. And then that kind of takes the struggle away because it's like, okay, someone's just said I could eat, so it's fine. And then on a more practical note, I would say don't make yourself sick because you will damage your teeth. I was always really proud of my teeth because until three years ago, I didn't have any fillings. I had perfect teeth. And now I've had so much dental work because bulimia really does damage your teeth. So I would say, don't do that. (laughs) Mm. Oh, well, I think great advice there, Victoria. And what would you say to anyone else who is struggling now? Oh, lots. I'll try and be brief though. So (laughs) I would say that in order to begin the recovery process, you have to realize that it's you alone who have the power to recover. I felt like I was always waiting for something like, oh, when I, when I do this, I'll be able to recover. Or when I do this, I'll recover. No, it's not going to come. Someone is not going to come along and make you recover. You have to go 
I've got the power to do this. And then once you've realized that, you have to be in the right state of mind to commit to doing it. I tried to recover before, but I didn't want to. It's like I knew I needed to recover, but I was also so committed to and chained to this eating disorder that I didn't want to. So you have to be ready to do it. But during recovery, it's also essential that you have support. You have a support network from family, friends, therapists. Even though you have to start it yourself and you have to make the decision to recover, you can't do it on your own. I would also say delete, get rid of anything that might prevent you from recovering. So any fitness or diet apps on your phone, any social media accounts that you might find triggering, get rid of your scales, get rid of your tape measures, donate all your clothes that are smaller sizes, get rid of thinner photos of yourself, just anything that you think might hinder you in going forwards. So yeah, look, look forwards as well. Don't compare yourself to when you were thinner or when you thought you looked better because you won't recover if you keep looking backwards. Also, I would say something that you said to me in our first session, which you got me to do is my homework, which I loved because I like homework. And you said, you asked me to imagine what my life would be like in a few years time if I didn't recover and then if I did and I didn't recover, I just couldn't imagine myself even being here. And that was just really a wake-up call for me where I thought, I can't continue down this path because where, where is this going to go? I thought, I have to recover, otherwise I, I won't have a life. And that really helped me. So I would say try and, try and do that. And also you might always have disorderly thoughts. You might always have that voice in the back of your head. As I said, I, I've suffered from eating disorders for 25 years and I don't truly believe that they will ever properly go away I think I'll always have this voice in my head but it is possible to quieten it and you can logically decide whether to listen to this voice or not so yeah I'm still on that journey to to quieten this voice to find out who I am apart from my eating disorder to try and find this new identity so because I've always relied on having my identity is oh I'm anorexic or I'm a, comp a bikini competitor and now when people ask me you know, who I am I just try and say you know I'm Victoria whereas before I would have said oh I'm Victoria I'm a pro bikini competitor or I'm Victoria I'm an anorexic or now I just I'm trying to find out who I am without these labels so yeah that's what I would say to people try and find out who you are you are not your eating disorder you are not your body mm, I think such helpful advice Victoria yeah I just really want to say thank you so much for you know coming on the show today because I think I appreciate you sharing so openly and as someone who has really kind of walked the walk and has a real kind of in-depth understanding of eating disorders and the impact they can have and also your kind of journey into the kind of fitness world and your insights into that I think it's just so valuable and I'm sure like the listeners are going to gain so much from this episode so thank you so much for coming on and for sharing so openly you know I really appreciate it thank you for having me Harriet it's been lovely speaking to you again so I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Victoria as much as I did and thank you so much, Victoria, for coming on today and for sharing so openly. It's so much appreciated. 
So if you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the Food Freedom Coach. And for regular tips and insights into overcoming disordered eating, do sign up for weekly articles on my blog page at foodfreedomcoach.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm-hmm.